Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And this is Erin. So this week, as promised, we want to discuss the job market and applying for jobs as a PhD and as a parent. Today, we're super happy to have Dr. Elisa Alkins. She is a tenor track instructor at Harold Washington College, a city college of Chicago. As she joins us for this conversation, um, it's really important to mention, too, that Elisa also is the mother of two children, and she teaches a number of courses in composition and literature at the college. Elisa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I love this project. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. That's really great to hear. And we've noticed that we've uh, been receiving messages and posts from people all over the world, which is really great to see. And we're really glad that we can continue to sort of talk uh, through these conversations that are so important for all parents and in particular mothers who are working in academia. Um, So before we sort of get started about applying for jobs as academics with children now, I thought we could kind of do a brief check-in and just see where we're all sort of how we're all feeling this week. Um, you did. It sounded like things were going really well for you last week as far as like your pandemic planning and getting your children prepared for school. How is that going this week? Is everything still looking as um, optimistic for you? How, how are things? I did make it sound like that, didn't I? I, I we had a really good first week. And then last week uh, started with, um, you know, people walking out of the house without masks on. My daughter, I completely gave up on the biking project. I was very hell-bent on uh, riding the bike to school. That did not work out at all. It was just too much. The first day I dropped my daughter off at school, she ran off and then ran back to the car and said, Mom, I don't have my mask. So I shared this on uh, on Instagram at some point. She made a, she drew a big sign saying, nobody is allowed to leave the, ma- the house without a mask on. No excuses. So it was the, you know, the last, the second week was a lot more difficult than the first week. And a lot of the things that I was really psyched about during the first week that I thought were going well, you know, were not necessarily set up for the long term just yet. So it's a work in project, but we're, we're working on it. It, you know, she found her lanyard that they gave her and we, you know, we managed to put a, to put a reserve mask in her backpack and things like that. So we're working on some solutions, but definitely not as, uh, as sparkly as I laid it out in last week's episode. So just wanted to be, uh, straightforward about that. Um, Alisa, you have two kids as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how your fall is going? Are your kids at school or are they engaged in remote learning? And what is, what about your own classes that you're teaching and how are you managing everything together? Big question. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So my children are young. I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old. The three-year-old is back in his home daycare. So we resumed that in July. They do not require masks for the children. The adults have masks there. And I think it was at the time when I put him back in, there were like five families there. So it's a very isolated, you know, even though we're in a big city, there were it was a limited number of people going and things like that. We had decided in the spring that we would not send him to preschool this year because he turns four in October. So he won't be going to kindergarten next year. And so we had made the decision months and months ago that he wouldn't go to preschool this fall anyway. So he's just in daycare, and that seems to be going really well. I think that he's happy to be back in a kind of normal pattern. Uh, My daughter was also in daycare for a little while just for socialization and things like that. That's probably my greatest source of anxiety right now is the 
you know, the normalcy of interactions with other children. But now she's in remote learning. So she goes to uh, the public school system in Chicago. And we really liked her school last year. Uh, but she struggled a bit with remote learning in the spring. This week went okay. I'm still learning how to navigate things. But I think that it's important to note that my husband had been on a contract job that ended in May. So he's actually the one who's taking care of remote learning while I'm working. It's really nice. Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of anxiety and continue to have a lot of anxiety about his return to work. Sure. Because I'm concerned that I will then end up taking on the project of full-time remote learning assistance and full-time work. So that is an anxiety that continues to loom large in my mind. As for myself, I am, I've been remote teaching since March. So we went online mid-March. Um, I taught a fully remote class this summer, which went pretty well. Um, and this fall, I'm teaching three composition courses. So I'm teaching one of them is developmental. And then I have two kind of standard English 101, English 102. I favor a synchronous approach to to class. Uh, mostly actually for my developmental courses, I was teaching two developmental in the spring, one over the summer and one this fall. And, you know, I've, there's been a lot of talk about like synchronous versus asynchronous and the idea that synchronous may put a lot of pressure on our students. But because of the population that we serve, um, it's a mixture of like first generation students, English language learners, low income students, immigrants or children of immigrants, like just a very diverse uh, selection of students, let's say, I think that they need the stability of the synchronous courses. And I would say that my attendance is at like 95% in my synchronous courses this fall. And so I think that for me, it's key to be a kind of um, stabilizing force in my students' lives. And so that's what I am working toward with my uh, remote learning courses. That's awesome. And it resonates with me as well. We also have a lot of adult learners who are considered non-traditional students. And most of the people had signed up for class. The classes I'm teaching right now were meant to be in person, right? They wanted to come. I don't know that the um, synchronous model is challenging. I think I like the word you use as kind of a stabilizing force in their lives, right? That they can, they know we can have these conversations um, for the most part, everyone is tuning in and listening and even engaging. I still think I'm struggling to keep it dynamic. Uh, we were sort of chatting about this earlier, using those breakout rooms. And it sounds like you're doing a lot to be really creative to try to keep that good energy in your class. Um, and I was happy to see you when my daughters and I were in Chicago for a conference. We actually have talked about conferencing a little bit and bringing our kids along. And it was my older daughter. So it was really nice to catch up with you and see where you're working, which is really cool. Um, a really different landscape from when I work. So I wondered how long you've been on the job and how did you get there? I guess we're going to talk to you a little bit more specifically about, you know, your interview and job selection process. But how long have you been there now in Chicago? Sure. Yeah, I just wanted to mention it was so lovely to see you. Uh, there haven't been very many people that I knew in Michigan that have come to Chicago, weirdly, or they come, but they don't visit, which I totally understand, right? But still, I think it was just really nice to see you in that context and get to walk around with you and stuff. So it was very delightful. So I have been at Harold Washington. My first semester was spring of 2019 which is usually in, I think in Michigan, it's usually the winter semester. So the one that starts in January. 
Right. So I started in 2019. Um, and I'll just take you through a little bit of that particular process. So I interviewed three times at Harold Washington. They were all in person. So I was commuting from Michigan to Chicago all of those times, which is like a four-hour drive one way. So I interviewed three times in person in the fall of 2018. I received um, the official offer and notice in November that like everything was to, you know, go and I had the contract and everything. I moved to Chicago in December. So I was, um, I moved December 28th. So after the Christmas holiday, and then I started January 3rd, I think was my actual start date. The interview process looked like this. My first interview was a one hour long interview that was just answering questions from the committee. There were nine committee members. Wow. So yes. So it was a semicircle with me in the middle. It was extremely intimidating. It's very funny to look back on because now they're all obviously my coworkers and they're very wonderful people. Uh, but at the time, it was very intimidating. And my second interview was an hour long, not really an hour long teaching demonstration, but, you know, we did the teaching demo and then they asked me some questions. And I asked them questions. Um, and then the third interview was grueling. It was two one hour long interviews. So I had an interview with the president of the college. And then directly following that, I had an interview with two deans, the vice president, and then a committee member from English. And so he is was a chair of the department, but he had been at the other two interviews. And so he was like my beacon of hope. Like he was very <laughs> supportive. You know, he would like interject in like such a positive and amazing way. I just, I will never forget it because I was so um, anxious and, and terrified, honestly. So, and I think the, there were a lot of challenges and we'll talk about them in a little bit, but uh, just practically speaking. So as far as uh, the expenses for doing those interviews, I traveled to all of them via car. I was not compensated for any sort of like, you know, like hotel stay or anything like that. So I actually stayed with my sister twice who lives in Milwaukee, which made the, the trip much longer because it's an extra couple hours to Milwaukee. And I was, you know, commuting back and forth. It was kind of crazy. Um, and, and my turnaround was always like 24 hours. So like I would drive in the evening, I would do my interview in the morning and drive all the way back home um, the next day. Um, and then one time I actually was able to stay with a friend of a friend in the city who, funny enough, I ended, I ended up living like less than a mile away from her. So, so now I'm just like in her neighborhood. And so it was a really funny thing where like, I ended up basically, you know, living down the street from this person I stayed with for my second interview. So that's wow. the, that was the process in a very basic sense. So was this pretty similar to what you did at other uh, jobs that you interviewed for? Do you Are you willing to talk a little bit more about how many interviews you had overall and if this is pretty similar to some of the other processes or how that compares to other jobs that you interviewed for? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that just um, off the bat, so I don't forget to mention uh, most other places for initial interviews, I didn't. So that kind of screening interview, that that first interview with the committee, it was never usually in person. So, you know, usually when I was a finalist, that's when I would do everything like the teaching demonstration and the uh, the administration interviews. And so this was unique in that that first interview was in person. But I actually really liked that aspect of this process because I felt like 
there were many people who lived in Chicago who were interviewing there. And I thought that they would maybe have the edge over myself if I was on like Zoom or, you know, go to meetings or whatever. So I was actually really grateful to have the opportunity to meet with the people in person. I think that that's a different energy. That being said, it was grueling. The, you know, the drive was a lot because I was at that point, I was at three different institutions. And I'll talk more about this with the, the adjunct situation. But at the time, I was at three different institutions teaching five classes. So I would basically teach, you know, all day, every day for four days, get in my car on Thursday night, drive to wherever I was staying, wake up in the morning, do the interviews and then drive back home. So I was it was it was insane, honestly. Um, but I do have some information about my journey, if that's okay, to kind of launch into the whole process, like how I got there. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, so I started applying for jobs in the summer of 2016, and I applied till the fall of 2019. So practically speaking, I was on the job market for three years. The first year, I think I had 17 applications. The second, I had 50. And the third year, I had 44. So I had a total, I had applied for a total of about 111 academic jobs over a three-year time period. Wow, Um, that's just like incredible to me. I mean, (laughs) your fastidiousness and just like when you're saying that number, like I even think the first like 15, 16, 20, that overwhelms me. So bravo to you for your resilience. Thank you. I, I did. I did literally make it my job. And I think that when people say it's like having another job, it's like, you know, it seems um, like a figure of speech. It is not a figure of speech. It is literally an entire other job, which is why it's such a difficult thing to do when you have kids and another actual job. Um, so that's, right. um, and actually, I, I will say that so for example, the first year I only applied to certain kinds of jobs that I, I, all I know is that by the last year I was not applying to certain jobs. So for example, like I was just not applying to research-based jobs at all. And so that kind of went against my sense of what I was supposed to be doing. Um, you know, it's like the rule is you apply to the jobs, right? You apply to all the jobs. But I realized, I learned really, you know, a year or two into the process that it made no sense to do that. I needed to really target my search, which is why I applied to less jobs the third year than the second year, yet still ended up with more interviews. So I think that it made a lot more sense to put my energies toward these institutions where I knew I wanted to work instead of just applying to all the jobs. So I I broke it down by the numbers. So I, I interviewed at a total of 14 institutions over those three years. So I had a 13% success rate. So out of the 111 jobs, I I interviewed at 14 institutions. The total number of interviews was 25 because most places I interviewed multiple times. The total actually number of finalist interviews I had was actually at uh, 11 out of 14 which is not to pat myself too much on the back, but like, that's pretty, I didn't know that when I was working this up last night, I was like, wow, I had a 79% uh, rate of if I got an interview there, I was also a finalist there. So that was pretty surprising to me. Um, And I, and I ended up with two offers just to loop that back. I got offers at 2% of the total number of places I applied. And I actually rounded up on that um and 14% of the places i interviewed so that's how much it boils down you know from like 
you know, if you, so it is a numbers game to an extent. Like I, I was dependably thinking in my brain as I was um, applying for every 10 jobs I apply for, I might get one interview. I would say that I remember calling my mom on the way home from one of my Harold Washington interviews in a rage, because at this point, this was like my, you know, I don't know, 10th, I think finalist interview. And I was like, I'm done with this. If I don't get this job, I'm qu- I quit. And I had done so much work, you know, I had, but I was so tired of getting to the final step and then not getting the job. It was so defeating, but I have to say the experience of interviewing was completely invaluable. Like I had to have that experience. There were, I remember with much cringing my previous interviews and they they went poorly. Okay. It didn't feel like they went poorly at the time, but they went poorly. But my interview at Harold Washington did not go poorly. You know, it went really well and I was able to be so confident and so articulate and I could do it so well because I had had all those interviews. And so I was so used to the process that by then it wasn't such a big deal. I, wa- I kind of wanted to talk for a minute, if I could, about what I was facing as I was doing these interviews. Okay, absolutely. One thing I wanted to say is I love that you're breaking this down by the numbers. I think this is really helpful for anyone that is still on the market or for people that are preparing to go there because when you face it this way, right? I mean, it is kind of daunting, but it also shows your resilience and the idea that, you know, you did learn from each of these. I think that's a really key piece of information that as defeating as that can be to like, oh my God, I'm a finalist again. You take away something from every one of those experiences, right? And even the ones that maybe you didn't want, you still probably garnered something or took some piece of information from. So yeah, what else? um, So where did you want to shift next to thinking about this? Yeah, so I just wanted to talk about what was happening at the time, um, like in my, let's say, motherhood journey. So, so as this is all happening, I'm having children. So my, um, my first interview that I had at a community college, I was 18 weeks pregnant. And so, and with my second child. So as you guys know, at 18 weeks, it's like, you can kind of pretend like maybe you're not pregnant. You know, like you can maybe, you know, do a little hiding of the belly. And I didn't want them to know. I didn't want them to know I was pregnant. Um, I never wore my uh, wedding ring at any interviews. I didn't ever want to talk about my children. I didn't want to go there. I didn't want my personal life to be on the you know, on the um, table. So I didn't, I, I left it off. My second interview, as Aaron knows, because I interviewed for the job that Aaron has, I was 38 weeks pregnant at that interview. <laughs> so I literally, like I was due in two weeks and I had my child two weeks later. Um, so wow. I, was, I was massive. It was silly, but I still wanted to interview. You know, I wanted to interview for the job and I did. Um, I shocked the committee. They were like, they could not hide their shock. I remember at my first interview, my first interview at the first one where I was 18 weeks, he, they did ask me about my family. And I didn't want to lie because that seemed insane. But I was like, wow, you're really not supposed to ask that. And this person, I think, was a dean. Anyway, and actually, that college is near Mount Pleasant, actually. So it was like mid-Michigan. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, all kind of whatever. 
keeping it local. Um, but so, so, but then I was actually on the national market though. And so I know you guys have talked a little bit about, you know, those sorts of restrictions, right? And one thing that I was really lucky about is that I could be very mobile. And because my children were young, I didn't have the sort of uh, geographic ties that many other people have. And in fact, I've lived in Southeast Michigan my entire life, like the same little towns, you know, I was very much ready for the adventure. Knowing, of course, that like, I couldn't have exactly the same adventure that I could have with no husband, no kids, right? Like, you do have to be more rational about these things. But uh, you know, my husband basically doesn't work in a particular field. You know, he's a project manager and that's such a generic position at this point. So it's like he could, we could literally go anywhere, like almost anywhere. We couldn't go to maybe like rural Iowa, but we could go to most places and think that he would probably be able to get a job, um, you know, maybe even remotely, but he would be able to have something. So I was really lucky. So I started traveling and I had an interview in New York for a visiting assistant professor. That was actually the first job where I had an interview and I was like, I will not take this job because it was very clear. I asked them in the interview, I'm like, would you hire me on full time? And they were like, we can't do that. And I was like, well, I can't move to New York with two kids for nine months and then right. move back to Michigan. Like that's just not going to happen. Um, but uh, at the time I was pumping. So I, I breastfed uh, my second child for 10 months. And so I was still breastfeeding in the spring when I was doing these interviews. So I hid my pump in my bag because when you go to in-person interviews, a lot of times committee members will pick you up from the airport. So I had, so I hid that I was pumping, which, you know, I think that's a personal thing, but like, I just, again, I just didn't want them to know about that aspect. Another thing that happened once is that I almost missed an interview. So I had an interview in Florida and the, the, the ticket that they had booked me was on, you know, one of those airlines that, you know, overbooks flights and I was on the standby list. So I missed a flight and I was freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, I have this interview. I'm going to miss it because of this, you know, this airline. Um, so I ended up, I ended up arriving late and the, the chair of the committee picked me up at like midnight. Wow. I was like, oh my God, I felt so awful, but she was so cool about it. She was so nice. And so that was an adventure for sure. So I would say that the semester I was interviewing for the job at Harold, I was teaching, like I said, I was teaching five composition courses at three institutions over, over a four day period. So it was just like all day, every day. And then most Fridays I was interviewing in one two week period. I had four interviews at three institutions. So I had like a Friday interview. I think, I think the Fridays must've been Harold Washington. So it was like, Friday, I had an interview. Monday, I had like a Skype interview. Wednesday, I had another Skype interview. I don't know how I did it because I was like teaching and grading and parenting. And like it was, I, it just blows my mind that it even happened. Um, I actually ended up declining an interview. So I actually got a finalist interview in at a school in Arizona I had looked up the cost of living and then I looked up their, uh, what they paid. And I was like, we literally would not be able to afford to live there. 
So I, right. I that was the only interview I declined where I was just like, literally, I cannot because they were going to fly me out. And I was like, I can't do it. And at that point, I was in I was a finalist at Harold Washington. And I was a finalist at another school. As you can imagine, my health was not great. <laughs> um, during that time, it's the fall, I had little kids, it, you know, I was working so many jobs. For my, I think, second interview at Harold Washington, I developed this really strange I, I guess I want to call it a flu, but the only um, symptom I had was just full body soreness. So like, imagine like you r- had run, like if either of you have ever run, but like you're not a runner. And so your, your legs are sore. My whole body was like that for the whole week. So I went to work. I think I actually, at one of my jobs, I had to leave. I was like, I feel so sick that I have to, um, you know, I, I, I sicked out basically. Um, because I had to drive to Chicago to do right. this interview the next day and I was dying. Um, and of course I was always anxious before interviews. So like I wasn't eating right. And I was just, it was crazy. I, I had a cold at my third interview at Harold Washington. And I remember because like, I was trying to sound like I didn't have a cold, but I was also so stressed that at the end of the interview, I remember the VP going like, you know, go take care of yourself, go oh rest God. because you clearly have a cold. I was like, ah, I remember, uh, my third interview at Harold Washington was the day after my son's second birthday. And I remember, so I had to leave on his birthday to drive to Chicago and I was devastated. I cried. I felt so horrible. I was like, I'm leaving him. It's his birthday. You know, he was so little. I just felt terrible that was um really kind of traumatic for me even more traumatic is when I flew out for my interview for the other job that I had gotten offered my son had a fever so he was sick and I didn't want to go I wanted to cancel but I I felt like I had to go like I, I had made this commitment I had paid money that like I needed back you know what I mean I'm like I can't have sunk all this you know time and effort into this interview um and not go so I went it was a and that was just in the fall it was a lot amidst that we had had to move like our house got sold out from under us so we had to move to a different place and then you know the day before we moved my husband lost his job and that that was just like a like a, just a tornado it was it was a hellscape for sure um but i'm so grateful that that happened because i'm in this place now where um i landed in such a good place like i love the city looking back all those places where i was devastated i didn't get the job i'm so glad i didn't just because they were just not the right fit there are so many things about the experience that were awful but the end result was to me was really worth it. No, that's, this is all super helpful too. And I think one thing that is odd in our field at least is um, when people are not inside the academy, they're just like, just apply for a job, you know, just apply for a job and you'll get one. And I know our podcast is for people specifically within this community, but I've received that kind of feedback from my family a little bit sometimes. Well, like just, you're great, you know, just apply for the job and you'll get it. And I'm like, it's really not that simple. I mean, you're talking about like a three year journey for most jobs, people, you know, it's, it's not quite like that. Um, I have friends who work in 
the creative uh, sort of like design and advertising, and they switch jobs a lot. People um, on the West Coast where they just maybe stick at a job for like three months and then they're off to the next um, space. And so something that you had mentioned a little bit, and I think this is kind of a question for both Alisa and you did, is this idea of like moving away from your home base with small children. And I know Judith's brought that up a little bit because she's not separated um, by a state line, but rather the ocean, right? That like to have grandparents, um, familial people, aunts and uncles, I mean, you're like a whole continent away. Uh, But, you know, Chicago to Detroit can feel like that sometimes too. So is it hard ever for you, for both of you, um, to sort of be kind of disconnected from that family support system? And was that hard then to make, you know, it sounds like um, ideologically the college you landed on really fits with your scope and your values. And I know you did, you're very excited about the work you do in the publishing field. But for either of you, I mean, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the day to day, right, of maybe not having a support system? Like I am so spoiled and privileged that my mom is like five minutes away from me, right? Uh, She lives a couple of cities over and she can come at the drop of a hat. One time I was teaching a class and my daughter apparently had an asthma attack and I was in Detroit and she was in Clawson. And so my mom got there in like five minutes because I couldn't be there. Does this ever affect you at a very sort of practical level for either of you kind of being a parent um, focused, focused in on your work, but not having that connection to family or support nearby? I imagine that Judith and I are going to have much different perspectives on this. Mine is, I think, fairly Unique in that, so when I was in Michigan at the time that we moved, I was actually really struggling with what I perceived to be a lack of support from my family being in Michigan. So both of my parents live in Michigan, uh, but they both work full time. So neither one of them would ever be able to, and we had, we lived so so close yet so far. So it's not like even if they weren't working, I don't think that either one of them would have really been able to watch my kids for me or anything. And I really struggled with what I perceived to be like, I had expected when I had kids, and I lived in the area that they would like volunteer to babysit while we went out to dinner. And that didn't happen. I mean, I was at the point of such frustration. And I have other sisters who live in Michigan as well, but they have their own lives, right? And so um, we were at the point where we were like, I need to find a babysitter. Like, I need to find somebody who will watch the kids uh, when we go on a date. In Michigan, I felt this way. So, uh, and my in-laws live very far away. So, like, they either live in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan or they live in Florida. So I didn't have any, I didn't feel like I had the level of family support that I wished I would have had. Um, of course, they have, they're under, family is never under any obligation to, to help ever. So like, it, it was, it was, I think it was more of a problem with my perception than it was with my family's, you know, support or whatever. And weirdly, I have found a very strong community in Chicago. So um, I have a really close, I have a couple of really close coworkers who have children I have, you know, the daycare is such a, a a place of support for us, you know, not only just practically speaking, but just like emotionally kind of, we're very close to the people who work at our daycare, even just like the neighborhood, because they're so, it's such a tight knit community. You know, when we were on lockdown for so many months, we ended up, you know, playing with neighborhood kids outside, of course, you know, it was, it was very 
easy to do that. Um, and I even ended up, one of my coworkers has a teen son and he was our babysitter. Like he would take care of our kids while we went on dates. And so it was a weird situation in which moving here actually facilitated a, a greater sense of community and a greater sense of support than I felt in Michigan. I'm sorry. I'm also, again, kind of seeing the world through my own lens and, you know, like thinking that all grandparents are helpful. Um, I can put it out there that of the grandparents, <laughs> my mom is the only one that helps. So I sort of I, I think I need to adjust my tune there that we have another whole side of the family, which is my husband's that has literally never met three of the grandchildren. So I'm kind of coming to this like, oh, yeah, it's so wonderful. My mom helps. But I, I think that's a good point you make that not all family can help and not all family is always willing to in some cases and ours. So you did. Um, what's your what's your thought on that sort of connection to family and finding support within the community? I really like what Elisa was talking about with the community that she found in Chicago. It was much the same for us when we moved to the D.C. area for a few years. I think that it was important for me to actually have that space and develop that space for a little while. We So when we were in Michigan and I was in grad school, we relied pretty heavily on my uh, mother-in-law for babysitting. And that was really great. And that was really helpful. And she was really supportive. And, you know, I could come to her at any time and say, I have an evening class or I have a weekend thing that I need to do. And she was always, always happy to help. And I think that I personally relied on that in a way that prevented me from growing as a parent, if that makes sense. So once we moved to Rockville, I was sort of on my own for the first time, really. And that kind of helped me grow into that and take that responsibility and take charge and become more sort of um, creative with the way that we were caring for our kids and and balancing that with with work. There wasn't I didn't always have this backup and so I had to be a little bit more deliberate and determined in how I was setting up childcare and I feel that that has really helped me become more confident in my parenting and more sort of able to navigate the different spaces. I remember one time I already mentioned this recently and I then I as I was thinking about it after we talked about it in the conferencing episode I remembered another aspect of it which was the uh, the PCA conference that I was working as an acquisitions editor that was in DC a few a couple years ago when we were still living in DC which was that my husband was actually out of town at that time cuz he had to travel for work and so that was so I was in a situation where this was a conference that was over Easter, and usually I would have even been able to ask my mother-in-law to fly down and spend the weekend with us and help me out, but she was in Germany at the time. So I was literally like on my own. I had to travel to D.C. The daycare was closed because it was Easter, and my husband was out of town, and I actually ended up also having a neighborhood community network that I relied on. I had a close friend in the neighborhood whose daughter was going to daycare with my son and she helped me out a lot. Her family is in Argentina. So she was sort of in the same boat where she was familiar with, you know, not having that family network to rely on and to build it in the community. And we lived when we were in, when we were in that area, we lived in a, in a very, it was a close knit community. It was like a small space that had a lot of, small townhouses and apartments. And so there were a lot of families with small children there. So it was possible to build that network. 
I can't say that I have built that network yet here where we are now. It's, you know, it's a rural town, so it's much more, you don't automatically bump into people at the local playground, which is the situation that we had when we were in Maryland. And so it sounds like that's a little bit more, maybe, Elisa, what you have going on in Chicago, where where people live a little bit more closely together, and that makes it maybe easier to build that network. I will also say that it because I'm not, particularly extroverted, it took me a lot longer to build that network in when we were in the DC area. So by the time that this conference happened, we had been there four years and I had this one other mother that I was ready to rely on. So I think it's a little bit of double-edged sword for me. I feel, you know, that there's some benefit to kind of figuring it out on my own. At least for me, there was, I know that it's also dangerous and that it does take a village and you do have to have people that you can fall back on. But for me, it really also, there was a lot of benefit to sort of being thrown into a situation where I had to be a little bit more proactive and deliberate in how I was setting these things up. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I feel like for me, it's, I'm also, I'm, I'm extroverted, but like, I still, like, I don't know how to relate to other parents. I have a hard time. Yeah. It's very awkward. Um, and so, like, there's still, you know, Elsa's best friend. I still have not, like, gotten in touch with his mom because I'm, like, just don't know how to relate to people in a normal way. Um, right. <laughs> but I would say that I think that for me it was so psychological in that, like, I guess when I had kids I made these assumptions about, like, you know, my mom's just going to love, like, taking the kids overnight. And like, she loves them, but it wasn't, it wasn't the way I thought. And so I was like feeling in like in a constant state of like disappointment and um, like, you know, just failed expectations. And so I think that having the control over it is helpful for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I never feel disappointed. Like, oh, somebody should be doing this thing for me and they're not doing this thing for me. You know, it's like, no, I have to figure it out or it's not going to happen. Um, that being said, I have a friend. Um, I have some friends in the city, I think, who would help in an emergency. But also, I mean, I do kind of have that in the back of my mind that like we kind of are all we have in the end. And so, you know, hopefully it won't end up you know, coming to just because when we were working downtown at one point, Kyle and I were working downtown. That's a 40 minute it's a 40 minute train ride and or a like 20 minute car ride. And so when we were both working downtown and like, for example, one time Elsa got hurt on the playground, um, her preschool was like, oh, she's hurt. I'm like, uh oh, well, do I need to hop on a train right now? Like, what's going on? She was fine. You know, they just, you know, it was a bandaid and, and that was it. But um, it does kind of make me think about like maybe some of those more serious situations. I will say that when I was in DC, I both of my hus- both my husband and I had an hour commute. And there were a couple times when I got phone calls from my daughter's school and they were like, She has a fever. And I was like, Well, I have to wrap up what I'm doing and then I have to drive out there. It's gonna take me an hour. Sorry. And there was nobody else that could have gotten her. And so she had to stay with the nurse for an hour. And there was just no other way around that. And that's part of why I really was working towards getting the opportunity to work remotely because I wanted to be closer to my kids. I, that was a stress factor for me and nothing really awful ever happened. So we were lucky in that way. But yeah, I mean, it's, 
she's had she was not happy with me when I got finally got there like an hour and a half or an hour later because I was in the middle of doing something at work that I couldn't just drop and then I had to go talk to my boss and be like listen I have to go pick up my daughter and you sometimes have to be there were some conversations that I had to have with the nurse where it was like I'm at work I'm an hour away how badly do you need me to come right now Mm -hmm. Uh, and sometimes they just had to everybody just had to stick it out um, because I had to make that clear that I wasn't just five minutes down the road, not doing much of anything. And so sometimes that was hard. That makes it harder for everybody. But I, again, I've said this before. I also think that it teaches the kids, you know, resilience in some ways. And it shows that there are, you know, we're doing other things that are also important to us. And they're always a top priority. But that doesn't mean that we're spending our days like sitting around and waiting for somebody to call me because my kid has boo boo, like, you know, Thanks so much, both of you, for sharing those experiences. I think they're super useful to people who are still thinking about how to balance work and life, and especially for some of our parents who might be single parents in the academic world. So I just wanted to shift gears a little bit now and think actually about applying for jobs this year and what the job list looks like, particularly in our field. Now that we've all kind of been gainfully employed, um, against all odds, we have, in fact, found work in our field that is meaningful to us, that we wanted. Elisa, it sounds like you're really in the right place and space that matches up with your um, teaching philosophy and reaching out to the students that need you the most. And I know you're a super passionate professor and Judith, you're in the field that you wanted to be working in the field of um, publishing and working on all these really cool projects. And I myself am at work, uh, just took a glance at our job list (laughs) recently. And I asked another one of my colleagues who is in the STEM field, just to always kind of get a different perspective about this and, you know, where they go to find jobs. And it, it is much the same, but I would love to hear from other academics who are outside of the humanities. But our job list this year, the big one. Well, it's not big. Have either of you (laughs) taken a gander? I mean, just even out of curiosity, now that we are all sort of gainfully employed and working where we want, it's still always, I always like to look at the job list and just see what's happening. Um, Have you taken a look and what do the numbers suggest to either of you? And this then does kind of tie into, I think, a lot of key issues in the field, whether that is obviously how the pandemic has shaped higher education, but also the adjunctification of higher education. I'm not coining that term, but it's been used before. Um, Have either of you taken a peek at our job list? And uh, yeah, how do you feel about it? I may... I have not even thought about looking at the job list. You have heard my story of the job market. I would be very pleased if I never, ever had to do that ever again. Um, And so it's totally off my radar. The thing that I do have to say is that most of the jobs I applied for were not on the job list. So I decided kind of late in the game that I was going to primarily 
apply for jobs at community colleges. And so I very rarely applied to jobs on the job list. And there were a lot of reasons for that. You know, um, we were prepared from day one in graduate school that there were certain things that you needed to do, certain things you needed to invest your time in, and certain things that were devalued. You know, teaching, I wouldn't say is necessarily devalued. Service is a thousand percent devalued in certain institutions, but at community colleges, it's a huge positive. And so the way that I built myself up in graduate school was so oriented toward community college teaching that it just made a lot of sense to orient myself that way. And so I, and I didn't want, I didn't want to do the hustle. So there, I have a, I have a story about, I was talking to somebody at the Modernist Studies Association conference in Boston. Um, and I think it was like, I don't know, 2018. So, or no, 2017. Oh my God. So far, so long ago. And she was like, well, we need to do these things, right? Like, uh, you know, the professor is in is like, you know, you need to meet the top ranking people in your field. You need to, you know, network and hustle and all this stuff. And I decided at that in that conversation, I'm like, I I'm opting out. Like, I don't want to do these things. And it's not out of laziness. It's out of just like, cringiness. I'm like, I'm not going to spend an entire conference, you know, puppying around to all these, uh, you know, people begging for a job. Like, I'm just not going to do that. And that's not what they meant, right? Like, it's, it's not, that's not exactly how it is. But I'm like, I just don't, I don't think that there's going to be any sort of payoff. And so my approach was much different. I think that what I, I could have done is gotten into adjuncting earlier in community colleges, it's like you you almost have to adjunct because community colleges do not want to hire people full-time who have not taught in a community college. It's a completely different environment than any other, basically. And so it's like you need to have the experience. And the other thing is many institutions, many community college institutions hire internally. And so I know that that's not always the case, but for example, at Harold Washington, almost all of my full-time colleagues worked there as adjuncts, like almost all of them. In fact, when I was on the job market and applying at community colleges, one of the negatives was that I was not going to be an internal hire. I didn't already work there. And so it's one of those weird things where, again, the conventional wisdom is don't adjunct, right? Don't adjunct. You'll be stuck there forever. But in community colleges, you have to do it. You have to have experience. And those couple of semesters that I adjuncted at the community colleges locally, that's what got me my job. Like, and so it's it's so weird. Like, I guess the biggest, you know, piece of advice I would have for people is like, figure out what you want and then work as hard as you can to get there, which sounds so like pat. But the thing is, is not everybody wants a job at an R1. And even if you do want a job at an R1, sometimes it's out of reach. So it's like, what do you want out of life? What do you want to do? What are you passionate about? What are you good at? And then figure out how to make that into your life. Because I think the conventional way of just like, I'm going to go to graduate school, and I'm going to publish these articles, and I'm going to get a job, like, that's not it anymore. You've got right. to think of something else. And, and you've got to do that early. Like, I should have known that I wanted to get a job at community college, like year two. Because then I could have adjuncted more. I could have, you know, I'm not going to say like, I wish I would have done that because like, I'm where I want to be. And I'm so excited about that and happy about that. But it's just like, you can't tell, you can't let other people necessarily tell you what to do or where to go, because that's not necessarily going to lead to happiness or success for you. 
I think you were always very vocal about that, though. I don't know, like, when you figured that out, but I definitely want to applaud you for figuring that out fairly early. I don't know when you figured it out. You said you didn't know it in year two, but I remember that you were always very clear on what your goals were, where you wanted to be, what you were passionate about. You were always very passionate about teaching. And so I think that that is a really good piece of advice. I do still always look at the job list almost every year, just because there's, for me, it's always still a question of whether or not maybe I could have done it or whatever. I just to give that background, I did one round of academic job search in 2015 in the fall of 2015 when I thought I was one year out from defending. And so I didn't have my PhD in hand. And so, but I never actually went back out after I had my PhD in hand because I was already knee deep into applying for jobs outside of the academy at that point when that job list came out. But I always look, I always see if there's anything there. The list has been getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And if we're talking about the the MLA job list, I think that you're right in saying, you know, those are probably jobs that are very difficult to get because there's a national search for them. I always looked at the Chronicle of Higher Ed too, and, and Inside Higher Ed has a job list too, but those are all also nationally posted. So what I was going to ask you, Elisa, if you could talk a little bit more about where you came across job postings so that those of us who tend to just look to the national list, get some ideas about what are some other places where they might find job posting that have a lot higher likelihood of success. Did you scour particular colleges that you were looking at? Were there local lists that you were able to utilize? Uh, could you speak a little bit more to that? feel like I used inside higher ed probably the most because community college postings are often there. You know, we were given that list, that kind of digest by the director of graduate studies. And what I really appreciate about uh, her and the way the direction that the department went is that like, (laughs) this is going to sound brutal, but whatever, like eventually they got real and they were like, hey, maybe we should help people get jobs at like community colleges. Like maybe, maybe let's be so stuck on you know liberal arts colleges and r1s like maybe we should invest time into professionalizing them into these these areas and so um but that was it you know i but i applied to like so for example i applied to every single community college um posting in the united states the only ones that I didn't, I stopped applying to, like, for example, uh, schools in California, because schools in California pay their tenure track instructors $50,000 a year. I'm just going to go out and say it about money. You're not living on $50,000 a year in California. Like, you're not going to do that. It's so expensive to live there that there's just no possible way. And so I, I started counting certain places out, you know, like, I didn't want to live in certain areas where my the ideology, maybe not didn't match mine. Um, and so I did get more selective as time went on. Um, but yeah, I would say that those served me really well. Like I, th- I would say that like probably inside higher ed was the best one. I think that if you're local, that's when you can target like, um, 
like literally go to the HR sites of the local schools that you want to work at. And just, I don't know, there's ways to like set up alerts when new jobs are posted. Then that's, I think the way you would do it is like, you know what schools are around you and you pay attention to those postings. But yeah, I mean, I think, and I think I I do have to say, so I actually did start applying um, at some point to non-academic jobs or all tech jobs. Um, I never once got an interview. So like the idea that you're just going to go out and apply for a job and get a job, like that is not, that is not the reality of the situation. Um, I know Erin mentioned that earlier with her family and like my family was like that too. They're like, no, you just like apply for a job and you get an interview and you get the job. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like that's not how any of this works. Um, I think it still took me like a year or something of applying to get the job that I have now. You had so much experience. You were so qualified. Like it was such a good fit for you. And yet still it took, you know, all yeah, that time. I mean, that's, I think that's a whole nother conversation that we can have at some point because there's a lot of interesting material there too. But to translate your, your skills that you have, that you gain in the, in graduate school to the Altec job market is very challenging. I found that to be very challenging and to present myself in interviews in a way that made me a desirable candidate. It took me a long time and also some interviewing experience and some, it was a learning curve there as well to get to the point where I finally got a job offer. Yeah. Yeah. I've struck out uh, a few times too. Um, I'm at a loss because there were jobs. I have a background previously in journalism and writing. And so I thought, well, I can fall back on that. The trouble is now I've been in this higher education track for the last 10 years. So I'm kind of like weirdly overqualified for a lot of things, but then underqualified at the same time. And um, last year, I thought I may need a new job because they were making some cuts. And I applied for a bunch of things actually at our alma mater that were writing related jobs. I did get one call back, but and it, it was actually a really cool job. But then when I looked at it, it was only part time. It was fractional. And I said, well, I would be willing to consider this if there's benefits. And they're like, well, the benefits would be applicable to you, but not your family. It sounded like a neat job. It was going to be like marketing and writing for the education program. But I just couldn't do that. And Elisa, you mentioned the cost of living. I think that's a very real concern for many of us, especially if you're thinking about pulling up stakes and moving the whole family or moving, you know, a single mom who is working in academia to move herself and a child or children across, you know, across the country. I mean, it has to be for a job that has the payoff, right? That you can actually support yourself and do those things. Again, my family's always like, but you're so smart. And now you have a PhD. It should be really easy to get a job. Um, And it's just, that's just not the case. And I like that you sort of talked about thinking, you know, what the realistic job market is for people. And it really depends on the college you're at as well, right? That I think early on we were told, you know, look, um, it's you're probably not going to end up teaching at Harvard or Berkeley, obviously. But, you know, do you want to work at a liberal arts college or do you want to think about community college? And I was always similar to you, Elisa, like, no, I like teaching. I want to teach. That's what I want to do. You know, it sounds like, Elisa, you were talking about this is a full-time job. And I know we've always heard that, but what you're describing sounds just like so overwhelming. So like, how did you keep track of things? How did you, you know, how did you stay organized within your searching? What types of materials you had sent in? Where, I mean, even when you're talking about, I had three interviews in a two-week period, how did you know where to end up? Like, how did you stay organized? Knowing me, I'd show up at the wrong college, be like, hey, they're like, no, Aaron, this interview is uh, next week. Sorry. So how did you keep focus on all that? It sounds overwhelming to me. Uh, Yeah, it was. 
I'm definitely a person of the, you know, I have, I have a Dropbox account and I'm a person of the folders. I'm like, well, the folders are going to contain all the things and I'm going to label things correctly. And that is going to help, you know, um, in terms of like, because when you're like uploading things and applying for things, um, Judith said that she had a spreadsheet and that's amazing. Like, I wish I would have done a spreadsheet. I had a spreadsheet that basically listed, it was organized by due date and then it listed the job title um some basic ideas about what field it was and what part of my profile would speak to it and then i had check boxes for documents that were required um including things like the teaching portfolio whether the whether they needed a teaching portfolio or student evaluations and things like that because as you both know my research profile was a lot stronger than my teaching profile and so i was basically organizing by jobs that would allow me to really emphasize the research part of my profile i also had a box that indicated how they wanted letters of reference because that was always a stressor to me because I, there are, you know, when people, my husband will say this too, oh, just send them an application. A lot of times you need to send along, uh, either you need to send along a letter of recommendation or you have to put down a person that they can contact that has to have a letter ready. So that means that I can't, if, a, if an application is due tonight, I'm not able to submit, even if I can get all my materials together, I need to contact my recommenders ahead of time to give them a heads up and possibly submit a letter of recommendation on time that they then want to maybe cater a little bit to the particular position. So that was all in my spreadsheet. And um, it, in some ways, I didn't always make it past the spreadsheet. So uh, Aaron, you and I, we looked a little bit ahead of time at some articles that gave advice on how to best manage and navigate the, the job search. And one of the pieces of advice on there was to make sure that you double check how you're spending your time. And if you're spending too much time working on your spreadsheet and not enough time sending out your applications, then it's time to sort of re reconsider how that time is spent. And I think that's really good advice. I found the spreadsheet to be extra helpful. I think folders are extra helpful too. If you just, every time you start a new application, just make sure that you start a new folder and label every everything so that you can find it, but it's clear to whoever you're sending it to what the document is. I think that's the trick um, in a lot of ways, right? Then those are those are good things to stay organized, but you do have to have that check-in of like, okay, I've spent 15,000 hours this week color coding my spreadsheet and I have <laughs> sent out zero applications that won't work right <laughs> yeah I and actually thank you for refreshing my memory I had word documents and in the word documents I had the title of the or like the the school name the date that it was due and the position so like full-time instructor or whatever American whatever so then I would go through the ad and I would just pull out keywords so like keywords being like you know online teaching or like you know the field or whatever like I would pull these like really important keywords that I could then use to insert into my cover letter so like it was it was a lot of the guesswork yeah. and I could just kind of like cut and paste right um and then I would have the materials in bullets and I would highlight them as I got them done 
so like oh you know I need my uh teaching philosophy now I've highlighted I've got it done and that's when I would put them into the folders and then I would be ready to apply that being said I mean when you're applying to jobs you usually have to do an HR application the HR application itself takes an hour right you know all that stuff like what's your address yada 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 (laughs) sometimes it would make you write an essay in a little box they're like please explain yada yada I'm like are you kidding me one of the schools <laughs> one of the schools I applied to this is hilarious one of the schools I applied to required five letters of recommendation five letters of five. Recommendation. like what why how so but I did it so it turns out that my advisor never sent his letter like I got an invite for an interview there and he's like oh I never sent it I'll send it now I'm like okay who cares I got (laughs) that's the other place I got an offer that's so weird yes (laughs) wow so so it's like it's okay nothing makes sense nothing makes sense in this whole thing like you could do everything right and get nothing or you can like mess up like I remember one of the jobs that I got an interview for I forgot the salutation at the beginning of the um like hi nothing like so I'm like I'm trying to make everything perfect and then like I mess things up and I still get an interview I'm like why I just don't (laughs) oh it's so it's like it it can be the thing is is that it can be completely crazy making and so do not let it make you crazy like the I, I have some like just overall uh recommendations for the job market I think the number one thing is you have to depersonalize. Like if you get mm. returns, it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. You can do everything right. Like it feels deeply personal. Like every rejection you get is like, I'm horrible. And yes, you know what I mean? It feels like that. But here's the weird thing. Like, so for example, I work in the city colleges. Okay. I had applied to at least one, but I think two other city colleges in the, so the same system. I never even got an interview at those places. I don't know how I got a jo- uh, an interview at Harold Washington. Like, I don't know what struck, you know, the HR person about me there that didn't work at the other city colleges. It's the same system. It's the same employer. Um, and so it's just so bizarre. And it's just like, I think the other thing is really target your search because, again, it's so much energy. And you don't want to like waste your energy. No offense to people, but like I was not going to apply to Harvard. I'm not right. applying to a job at freaking Harvard. It's not happening. It's going to take me three hours to apply to this job. And they're not even going to look at my, at my application. They're not even going to look at it. They're going to throw me out immediately. So it's like, don't, you know, and like, whatever, whatever feels like a waste of time for you, don't do. Same thing as like, if you know you're not going to work at a community college, do not put the application in. I know it feels like, oh, community colleges are safe. They do not want you if you don't like teaching. They do not want you there. You are going to make the students miserable. You're going to make yourself miserable. You're going to make coworkers miserable. Nobody's going to be happy. Do not apply to community college if you do not love teaching because that is what we do. So don't do it. Um, And also you should put a limit on yourself. Like how long are you willing to do this? Because it is hard. And it is like, I almost gave up a million times because just rejection after rejection. And I got interviews, like I interviewed and interviewed and interviewed. And every time I was rejected after doing the rigmarole, I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. It's like breaking me down psychologically. And so it's like, and 
So once you're done, what are you going to do next? You know what I mean? Like I wasn't willing to completely exhaust myself. And I'm also, I come from a, um, a working class background. And so it's like, um, I am willing to retrain. I am willing to go to trade school. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I wanted to have stable employment where I could support my family. And so it was like, I, nothing is below me. Nothing is. Um, but then again, I'm like, you know, I'm like a, you know, a labor supporter. I am in a strong union and I think that unions can be amazing and supportive. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I think that knowing your limits, setting your, a limit for yourself um, can be really helpful, like on a mental health you know, level. Right. Having that contingency plan in place seems really important because there has to be an end point. Um, there has to be like, okay, I've done it now for two and a half years or three years, or this is it. Um, because it is, it's exhausting. And I completely understand when you talk about the psychological dimension of receiving rejections, everyone's like, well, it's a part of it and get used to it, but I can't, I'm just a sensitive person. It sounds like you both are as well. Probably most people. Um, I think this is really helpful, practical advice. And then maybe for, you know, later on, you did, we could talk about, I think, the role of I, something I really do want to dig into is just um, being an adjunct and what that looks like and how that how that sort of like can be helpful. Because one thing that we come back to is if you are applying for that community college job, you need teaching experience, like you said. But at the same time, I felt like exhausted by that as well of kind of going around to five different colleges working you know a couple um, a couple of classes here and a couple there so I just I, I could really relate to you Elisa talking about that because I remember that was the time with the breast pump and maybe having a child that was like six weeks old and driving all over to get that work in to make ends meet and it was exhausting and so it sounds like applying for jobs can be exhausting as well. Alisa, you kind of gave us some nice closing thoughts. I think I love your sort of takeaway. I think that's a really good way to end. Judith, um, did you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I just have one anecdote to share really quick from my interviews, which one job interview that I sat in that was for a job outside of the or it was adjacent. It was for a academic research association that shall not be named. I was in the interview and the interviewer, the interviewer at some point said to me, if I had wanted somebody with your, with your qualifications, I would have posted the job at half the salary. So I think you do really have to be resilient in the, in the job search. I think it's important to be able to take those rejections and maybe laugh at them one day and, <laughs> and walk away with, uh, with, a lesson or something learned. And Elisa, I think your journey, thank you so much for sharing your journey with me. I think you really are a model in resilience. And I'm really excited to see that you've arrived at a place that really um, allows you to work towards you to work out your strengths and that, you know, values you being there. And it's been really, really great talking to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I just have to say, like, it's dumb how much I love my job. Like, I love my job. My coworkers love their job. Like, we love each other. It's like, it's, I'm so lucky. And I'm also so lucky that I didn't get all those other jobs. Like, because it would just not be the same. You know, I'm in a great city with, you know, these great coworkers, like I could not ask for anything more. And so like, you know, all that rejection, I think was worth it in the end. I feel really, 
really lucky. So much of it is luck, even though I worked hard. The luck is definitely a factor. But I also I'm going to emphasize how hard you worked, too. And obviously, not everybody who works hard gets lucky. But you but um, it is also um, earned and well deserved. So thanks you everyone for listening. If you want to reach out, you want to share your story, you want to tell us how the job market went for you or what kind of anxieties you have about it, you can contact us at PhD and Parenting Podcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Instagram under uh, PhD and Parenting. Right. Thanks so much again, Elisa, for joining us today. Thank you everyone that is listening around the world. It's really great to see that we have listeners everywhere now. It's amazing. So please keep in contact. We'd love to hear more about your experiences. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.